We would not buy a park that's in the middle of a rough area. We will buy a rough park that's in the middle of a good area. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. In Los Angeles, I'm Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Today, we have another episode jam-packed full of incredible investor advice and insider information from real real estate experts here in the United States. As you all know, I only interview the cream of the crop so international investors can cut through all the misinformation out there and start successfully investing in the US. So let's get into today's show. Today's show is all about learning from investors' previous experience and how they have learned valuable lessons along the way that has helped them survive economic downturns. And the gentleman in the hot seat to give us all the straightforward info and advice is Kevin Bupp. G'day, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Reed, how are you doing today? Good, mate. Good. Guys, Kevin is a Florida-based entrepreneur and passionate about all things related to commercial real estate investing, specifically mobile home parks and multifamily investing. Uh, one, of the, one of the main reasons uh, Kevin is so passionate about commercial real estate is that investors can create large streams of passive income. Kevin is currently the principal at Sunrise Capital Investors, who own just under 1,000 mobile home units throughout the United States. Kevin is also well-versed in investing in online companies and startups, but his main focus is commercial real estate. To top it all off, Kevin has been a principal in over $40 million worth of real estate transactions over the course of 15 years. His latest endeavor is the Mobile Home Park Academy, which is an educational course where Kevin hand-selects a small number of students and teaches them how to prosper in the field of mobile home investing. He's also the host of his own podcast called The Real Estate Investing for Cashflow. Check it out on iTunes today, and all the links will be in the show notes below. Kevin, pretty incredible stuff, mate. But before we dive into the nuts and bolts, do you want to tell us something that most people might not know about you unrelated to being a successful real estate entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. This is, this is a pretty funny one. You, know, you, you told me you're going to ask me this question, so I wanted to think about it a little bit. And uh, one thing that most people do not know about me, other than probably my very close friends and, uh, and, and my wife, obviously, is that I absolutely love old gangster rap music. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, I'm as white as they come, and I, I grew up in middle-class America, but for some reason, I love, like, you know, 1980s and 1990s gangster rap music, you know, shooting guns and talking about, you know, women the wrong way and all that kind of stuff. For some reason, I love it, and uh, I, I listen to it quite often. <laughs> who's your number one? Yeah, I don't even say I don't really have a number one. I mean, NWA, which right, now yep. a lot of people are familiar with because they just came out with a movie. But uh, that that was I had a brother that was six years to my senior when I was growing up, so he was six years older than me, and so I was a little young to be listening to that kind of music. I was like eight years old when when they kind of came out, but I listened to it because that's what he listened to, and uh, so they've just kind of stuck with me. I love NWA. I've got pretty much all their albums, and when I go when I exercise, I go to the gym, I go on bike rides. 
that's what I'm listening to. So if you see me riding down the road on my bike and I've got earphones in, I'm probably listening to some foul music. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it you enjoyed Straight Outta Compton? I, I haven't even seen it yet. Wow, I, have, okay. I'm, I'm, I, my, I couldn't get my wife to go to the theater with me. And I'm actually a, a big brother in the, uh, the Big Brother, uh, Big Sister program. And my little brother, he's 12 years old. He wanted to go see it. And I'm like, I can't take you to see this. Like, you're not old enough. And so I haven't been able to find anyone to go see it with me in the theater. And so I'm, not, I'm waiting for it to come out on you know, Redbox or whatever so I can go pick it up. But yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to it. I heard it's good. I heard it's, it's, re- really, it's good. really, really good. And, and you know, I grew up in Australia. So we, you know, we get a little bit of American influence, and and like yourself, growing up, I was a little bit thought I was a, I was a white boy, and uh, anyway, I won't get, won't dive into it, but it was really good. I love the movie and, and learning a little bit more about the American culture, particularly NWA and how they started and, and you know revolutionized in the early late eighties and early nineties. It was it was fantastic. So we do digress. I must be. This show is about real estate investing, not about a uh, hardcore early nineties rap. <laughs> but um, but Kevin. We, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about your background and where you've come from and what motivated you to get started successfully investing in real estate and, you know, go on to start your own uh, real estate company? Sure, absolutely. Well, I got started kind of by default. I was a pretty bad student in high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do after after high school. And I knew that if I went away to college, I'd probably waste my parents' money because I'd probably get kicked out because I partied too much. And so, I went to a local community college um, just because just it was affordable and it just seemed like the right thing to do. It, it seemed like the responsible thing to do at that point in time because I really had no direction. And so I was tending bar part time, going to community college. And when I was 19, so, you know, two years into, into the, my, my community college career, I started dating a girl and I and I her mother was dating a guy as well. And I met the uh, this guy that she, that her mother was dating and he was a real estate investor. And um, just long story short. Him and I ended up just hitting it off, um, and uh, he was, you know, 20 years my senior, so he was a lot older. But you know, he kind of, I guess he maybe he saw something in me in terms of, here's this kid, he's got no direction, he's got drive, but he's not really putting it towards anything. And so he invited me actually to a real estate uh, boot camp. I didn't know anything about real estate, by the way. I didn't know really what he did on a daily basis. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't really have like this burning passion to own real estate at that point in my life. And so. He uh, took me to a three-day boot camp, uh, how to fix and flip houses. Uh, that's what he did a lot of. Uh, he also owned some small apartment buildings and single-family rentals. And uh, when I went to this conference, this is when I was 19 years old, and um, I saw I met a bunch of people there that were making a lot of money that I felt like I was as smart, if not smarter, than they were. So I looked at my, I kind of looked at him. I said, "If these guys can do this, I can. I can do this." Then, and uh, so at that point, I asked him to take me with his wing and, and teach me everything that he did. And that's what I did. I literally followed him around like a puppy dog for like a year. I would. He he worked from home, so I would go to his home office during the day. I would go on appointments with him to um, go to his, his rental properties to meet with brokers, so on and so forth. And so. That's how I got my start. I, I basically did nothing for the first year other than educate myself and absorb as much as I possibly could. And then I, I didn't go off my own. Him and I did some deals together, and then I you know, started buying my own deals, primarily single family. I mean, that's what I did in the very beginning because that's what I knew, um, buying low-end stuff in Pennsylvania, uh, fixing and flipping it, wholesaling houses, did whatever I needed to do to make money. And um, I, uh, I finished my college, I mean, my community college up. I still finished that up. So I was 22 and uh, I was in Pennsylvania. I knew I wanted to make a change. And so I either was going to head out west, out to, I love Colorado, I love the mountains, or I was going to go down to the water down in Florida. And so it just happened that I knew someone going down to Florida, I had a friend. So I packed up my Jeep. I didn't really have, uh, didn't have a, a, you know, kids or a wife or anything at that point in my life. And so I, I moved down to Florida and, and uh, jumped on the bandwagon down here of real estate investing and kind of really, 
I hit it off down here. I met some uh, really high power investors and, and really took my business to the next level. Whereas I was doing a couple deals a year, uh, you know, we ended up with a portfolio of 120 single family rental properties, um, owned a bunch of apartment properties as well. And uh, that was leading up to the 2008 crash. And so I got my start really in single family. That was like our, that was our core focus. And, uh, you know, primarily long-term holds as well. We were buying stuff uh, once I moved down the floor, we were buying stuff to hold long term. I was I, I really was about cash flow at that point in time because I found that fixing and flipping was more of a job, and it was really it it, it, it was it's hard to scale, and every day you got to start over again. So in my mind, I was going to build this this portfolio that would you know carry me through my my late ages of my life, and uh, I did that. I built it. But then it went away in the you know during the recession. I lost a lot of what I had, uh, and um, unfortunately, most of the stuff I owned was in Florida, and it was in one of the hardest hit areas of Florida. And so, um, as fast as I built it up, it went away, and uh, pretty much all of it was gone. Right. Well, and that sort of segues into a little bit of what today's show is all about. And you know, Kevin, you and I spoke a little bit offline about your story, and I think it's incredible, and and just how you survived that. 2008 2009 recession and and as i said today's show is all about learning from other people's experience and i guess you wouldn't be still investing in real estate today without developing i don't know some some solid operating uh, platform and, and to make sure that your business and portfolio uh, are recession proof but do you want to walk us through some of the major fundamentals that you learnt going from you know pre 2008 and 2009 to sort of post you know those sort of four or five years in between and and what happened in your journey along the way, and, and what did you learn? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things uh, that I learned is that, and and I kind of knew this as we were let, let's let's you know we'll rewind back to two thousand five, and uh, I kind of you know we were we were buying a ton of property. I was partnered with a group that they owned about six hundred single family homes, and so we collectively worked together, and so we had a big operation going, and we were really good at it. And it's hard to turn you know that big of a ship quickly. And so we just, we stayed in our comfort zone and we knew that we should have been focusing on probably buying more apartment buildings because our apartment buildings just kind of ran themselves. I mean, we had management companies that managed them for us and we, you know, they, they just kind of, they took care of themselves and they, they gave us cash flow. Whereas these single family homes, it was a big job. It was a big project to manage them and to, 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 you know, manage the entire infrastructure of those. And so we knew we should have changed gears at some point, but by the time the recession started happening, it was too late. And so what I learned is that, I don't like single family homes. I just really don't. When I look back at at how my business was run back then and the amount of effort I put into building those single family home portfolios and buying that many homes and, and, and as much effort as they put in, you know, my partners put into buying 600 single family homes, that same amount of effort put into buying the apartment buildings that we owned, if we would have just focused on that, we'd have been much better off. You know, our cash flow would have been 10 times what it was with the single family homes. And so that was probably the biggest lesson I learned is if you want to scale fast. I mean, if you really want to get to a point where you have a portfolio that can sustain your lifestyle and actually truly provide you life-changing income, then it's really hard to achieve family homes. It takes a long time to do it. And uh, so I learned that I need to be focusing on commercial real estate. Really, that, that is the biggest lesson I learned. And I should have made that change sooner. Right. And and just you hit a little bit briefly. Did you did your company at the time notice that the commercial stuff was doing well or was it just like, oh, it's doing well, great, we've got to focus on, you know, we're too busy focused on fixing and flipping houses? Or, and was that like a mistake, not, not a mistake, but did you guys fall into those commercial multifamilies a little bit and, and it just came about that they were producing cash flow and you just didn't really pay any t- attention to it? Yeah, it's funny. We, we kind of, uh, we bought all those apartment buildings by default. 
we never really went out looking for them. They just kind of fell in our laps. We're like, oh, this seems like a good deal. And I don't, we didn't even really now, now knowing what I know now, and I'm, I'm talking to the, the individuals I partner with, they're about 20 years older than I am. They've been in business, been in multiple cycles. They'd owned thousands of, of single family homes. So very intelligent individuals, but they weren't really all that well-versed in commercial either. And so we probably weren't even evaluating these apartment buildings properly. And, and we bought them just... I mean, they worked out. We got lucky, right? So they, by default, we accidentally bought them and they just, we got good deals on them. Now I look back, I'm like, wow, we actually really got good deals, but we didn't even know what we were underwriting there. We didn't know the proper way to even underwrite an apartment building at that point in time. And, uh, you know, so it's just by default that we bought those. They just, they ran themselves and we, we looked at, we, we'd have weekly meetings. We'd always look at our numbers and, the apartment buildings just we never ever talked about them. They just worked. <laughs> you know, they just they just put money in our bank account. I mean, we we had we had a management infrastructure in place for our single family homes because we could never find local companies that would do a good job with that many homes. It just didn't work. And so we built our own infrastructure. But the apartments, most of the apartments were managed by a uh, an apartment management company, a local apartment management company. So we really didn't have a lot of of daily, you know, hands-on with those like we did our single family. And so they just they just produced money and they just did quite well. And yeah, so it was just by accident that we bought them. <laughs> well, I, I love what, uh, and I've spoken a little bit on this show about it, but I do love what you said about how much time and effort goes into, uh, you know, when you start out in, in real estate investing, there's a lot of time and effort going into fixing and flipping a home and, and, and having that, doing putting that same amount of effort into say 30 or 40 units is it just it does it, it just makes sense you know your multiplier might not be as big in terms of you know you flipped a home and you might get you know one point a, a 1.6 or 1.8 multiplier but that that as you said before the cash flow that you produce from that commercial real estate is really key so i like yourself kevin love commercial real estate and you know i described about the passive income do you want to do you want to talk about type the type of asset classes you're now investing in uh, i mentioned a little bit about mobile home parks in the intro and and how that was has completely you've completely shifted your mindset to commercial real estate and and do you even invest in multi uh, sorry single families anymore I have not bought a single family home since before the recession. Wow. <laughs> other than other than the home that we live in. I mean, so, you know, it just I feel like my energy is just better spent buying bigger deals, you know, deals that can produce, you know, sustainable cash flow and single family homes just it's not that for me, you know. Like I again, I, I can look back and see the mistakes I made in my business and I feel like the single family home portion was one of the big mistakes and I'd rather focus my efforts. We only have so much hours in the day, right? As individuals, I'd rather spend those hours buying bigger deals that can truly give me life-changing passive income right right so are you with the multi with the mobile home parks how is that i've never even looked at a mobile home park in terms of an investment strategy i assume it's very similar to the to multifamily. do you want to talk a little bit about where you're buying what type of asset class you're buying in are you buying a distressed mobile home park and then sort of adding value to it and forcing the appreciation you know commercial 101 is that you you raise the uh, the net operating income you're going to increase the value of the property so is that what you're t- trying to look for these days we're all always value-add investors we always have been value-add investors whether it's buying single family apartments or mobile home parks and so we always look for value-add type deals that we can force the appreciation whether that's you know running it more efficiently lowering the expenses maybe raising rent um you know fixing an occupancy problem something of that nature but we like to be able to buy deals that are in some some kind of distress uh and so with our mobile home park venture where we buy is basically the eastern half of the United States. So if you drew a line directly down the middle of the country and then went to the right side to the eastern half of it, 
minus a few states. There's a few states like Mississippi and Louisiana that we really have no interest in buying in because they're just mo- most of the states are pretty po- most of those states are pretty poor and there's not a lot of great markets that we would want to own a park in. Um, but the rest of the country, uh, you know, the rest of the half of that country would buy in. So right now we currently own parks in Florida, Georgia, Virginia, and North Carolina, and soon to be. Uh, Tennessee and South Carolina. So basically our criteria is this in terms of where we will buy. We we are based out of the Tampa, Florida market, and that's where we fly from. That's the airport we fly from. So we need to be able to fly within a, a, a number one, a direct flight. We need to be able to get a direct flight and fly within two and a half hours to whatever major airport is near our park. And then from that airport, drive you know an hour or less or 45 minutes or less in a rental car to get to our park. And so I need to know that I can get there within a four hour span of time, if I have to. And I've never had, we never have to, like, you know, we have managers on site at all of our parks. So even if there is some kind of emergency, there's someone there to handle it. I've never had to jump in a car, jump in a plane and, you know, quickly get to one of our properties. It just doesn't work that way when you have someone there, you know, handling the day-to-day operations. And so. Right. Right. uh, Interesting. And, and so the, the I, we talk about a lot of classes here on, on this show and a lot of international investors. When I first moved to the United States, I didn't know what a class B asset was or a class A asset was. So what type of class assets are you buying in the mobile home parks around you know the, the eastern half of the United States? Well, they don't use the same classification as they do in multifamily. It's not like a ABC class, D class. Uh, they use a five-star system. And I, I think it's a, it's a loosely used system. Like there's really no definition <laughs> to it. And so five-star being the best, one-star being, you know, scary to walk in at night, right? And so the five-stars, a lot of the five-stars would be classified as you see a lot of um, mobile home parks or senior resorts. So they're 55-plus communities, so they're age-restricted, age-restricted communities. They have amenities like pools and shuffleboard courts, and you know they're, they're just high-end. They've got palm trees all over the place, and you know, they're high-end resorts for senior citizens. That's a five-star. You know, On the low end of the scale, like I said, it's kind of a war zone, scary place to go in the middle of the night. And then we normally are buying in like the two to three star range. And normally what we like to do is be able to buy something that really is a a three star that's in a really strong market, but maybe it's currently a two star because it's got a lot of deferred maintenance, um, just really hasn't been run all that properly over the past 10, 15, 20 years and something that we can bring back up to speed. And so that's that's typically what we're buying. And we, we do not own any senior parks. Most of the parks or actually all the parks we own are what we would consider a family park, meaning that it's all all ages. So most of the people that live there have have children, not all of them, but all ages are allowed. There's no restrictions with ages or anything like that. And so that's typically what we like to buy. We like to cater towards the, you know, it's, it's affordable housing, right? And so we're looking for those that are, you know, what we would call in the U.S. as blue collar individuals. They make, you know, anywhere from, you know, minimum wage to maybe $15 an hour. You know, they've got a working household. Both people work in the household. They've got children and they're looking for an affordable, safe place to live. And that's who we cater to. Got it. Got it. Uh, I get constantly asked, there's a lot of here in the United States, that lower class of renting and, and making great cash flow. You know, you look at the numbers on paper and, you know, just even in single family homes, anything from single family homes to small duplexes up to, I'm assuming, you know, one, two, three star mobile home parks that on paper, they look great. You know, it's, you know, a cap rate of 18% or 20%. You're like, wow, that's incredible. But there comes a risk with that type of investing. So with, you know, renting to low income tenants, have you had your fair share of issues with with those tenants and, and, you know, drugs and wars and fights and all that sort of stuff that you maybe wouldn't get if you had a, a four star or a five star park? 
Well, I mean, I think that there, there's two different classifications of, of low income, right? So there's low income that's kind of in war zone type areas that is just, it's just rough. Like there's even if you even if you tried to make it nice, it's surrounded by rough. And so it's always going to end up being rough. It's going to turn back into what it was prior to you doing renovations to it. And so something like that, like we wouldn't buy, like we would not buy a park that's in the middle of a rough area. We will buy a rough park that's in the middle of a good area, right? And so we can actually bring it up to speed with the surrounding area. And so even though it might have rough people in it now, it's surrounded by good. And so we can, we, we can kick out the bad and get in good people. And just because you're dealing with a low-end demographic, people that only make $8, $10, $12 an hour doesn't mean they're not good people. I mean, so I've only ever dealt with affordable housing, like even the single-family homes we've had. I mean, we had some higher-end stuff as well, but most of the stuff we would buy was lower-end. I mean, it's just you know homes that were $60,000, $70,000, $80,000. So you're dealing with that same type of blue-collar individual. And it's just all about having the systems and processes on the front end, um, doing background checks, uh, you know, doing credit checks, doing employment verifications, all those types of things that you need to be doing so you can filter out the crap before it comes into your park. And that, so that's what we do. I mean, you know, we, um, we don't really have any higher than average turnovers in our parks, even though, you know, they're, they're, they're catered towards the low end demographics. Um, you know, we, it's, it's pretty typical and we don't have crime in our parks. I mean, we, um, we police it very, very strictly and, uh, we make sure that we get the right people in there. You know, I don't, I don't care if you only make eight or nine dollars an hour. It doesn't mean that you should have felonies and evictions in your background. If you do, then you're not going to live in our community, right? And so, um, yeah. So as long as you got the systems and processes in place, you're absolutely fine. The ones that you know, the, the people that that talk about you know these nightmare these nightmare properties, they might have bought it in eighteen cap or twenty cap. It's just in the wrong area. Like <laughs> yeah, they really, yeah. there's no hope for it whatsoever. And so you better be prepared to go there packing a gun. And collect your rent because it's never going to be anything other than what it is now. Right, know? right, right. And and do you? I know now what I didn't know when I first moved to the United States, and now when someone says, "Oh, I've got a an eighteen cap," and I'm like, hmm, "I'm scratching my head," and I need to look closely at the Google Maps of exactly where that is in that particular area. So, in terms of metrics, what do you guys look for? You say you it's got to be within a four hour, you know, achievable distance from Florida. What else goes into your metric calculation when you're looking at an investment? Uh, you mentioned that it has to be in a good area or a bad park in a good area. So what makes a good area? You know, we look for economic trends in the local marketplace. Is there job growth? I mean, are there any Fortune uh, Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 uh, companies there? Uh, is there a lack of affordable housing? Like, we'll look at the median house prices in an area. And if we if they're over $100,000, then there's probably a good chance that there's a lack of affordable housing, at least in the realm that we bring it in, right? I mean, because our, our parks typically, if they're just renting the lots from us, then our parks normally range in like the two fifty to three hundred dollar range for lot rent, and if we're actually renting homes, which we do sometimes, they're going to be in the five to six hundred dollar range. And so, if the only op- other option is for them to buy is to buy a hundred thousand dollar home, then you know we know that we're filling a good void in that marketplace. So we look for things like that. We look for population. We like to buy in metros that have a population of at least a hundred thousand people, which isn't a big metro by any means. It's a small metro, but we really look for stability with regards to. Um, low unemployment rates. You know, there's companies coming in. They're not moving out at this point in time. And um, again, just a, a lack of affordable housing. You know, we look at median uh, median uh, rents. You know, if we'll look on uh, there's a couple websites we use, but one's called Rentometer. I can quickly get on there. Yeah, I can quickly get on there. And if I, in fact, I looked at a park yesterday. Actually, on the front end, it looked like a decent park. I thought it was a good area. And I looked, and the average rents were like six seventy five for a three bedroom. Well. Forget about it then. I mean, because that's normally what they mean by that is like an apartment. And so we're normally about 15 to 20% below what the apartment rates are. 
and uh, which is kind of pushing it for me. Like that mean that means it's not that desirable. It's not really a market that's that I can see that's that's in a high growth mode and that the rents are going to be you know seeing significant increases in the future. And so we typically would shy away from something like that. But um, yeah, so we just look at all, all all the normal drivers that normal people would look at if they're looking for a market to invest in. We just want to know that it's stable and that there's going to be a demand for our product if we bring it to that market. I think you mentioned a great rentometer.com. For all those listeners out there, that is an incredible little site. Uh, I started using that when I first, someone told me to start using that when I first moved to the United States. And it, that's that's a very good um, advice you gave there, Kevin, about you know, Rentometer does quote what the apartments are. So if it's six hundred or seven hundred dollars a month, if that's what the area is saying on average, you need to take you said ten to fifteen percent below that, and that would be your, your sort of mobile home park. Sometimes twenty percent. Yeah, right. I mean, you got sometimes you got to dig a little deeper to, to figure out what that really means. But uh, yeah, typically between ten and twenty percent is what we're looking for, and we want to know that we can. I really want to know that I can rent a three-bedroom mobile home for six hundred dollars a month. That's kind of my target range, and so okay. that means that you know I need to see you know average rents in the neighborhood of you know seven fifty, eight hundred dollars or more mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. get me to get me real excited. Right, right. And and you said three bedrooms. Is do you have like a metric for two bedrooms? If you know if you were six hundred for three, is it five hundred for two? It's only fifty to hundred dollars less for a two bedroom. Is kind of what what our charging rates are, and it just depends on the age of the home and and things of that nature. And the overall size. There's so many different models of mobile homes. There's so many different sizes. So we really, the two bedrooms are normally between fifty and hundred dollars less, and that's that's kind of what we're looking for. Got it, got it. And so, Kevin, I mentioned in the introduction that you're providing a new educational learning mentorship program for investors in commercial real estate, specifically in mobile home parks. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that's going and and what investors can expect once it gets launched, or if it has yeah. been launched? Absolutely. It has not been launched yet. It's uh, it's something we've been working on now for the past six months, and we're looking to launch it uh, here in the next two months. So uh, we're super excited about it. It's basically, it's it's a program we put together out of need. Uh, you know, for the past year, I've been talking about mobile home park investing on my podcast, just, you know, talking about the deals we do on a daily basis. And I've had a lot of individuals reach out to me asking about this asset class, how to get started, you know, how to partner on a deal, how to find deals, how to raise money for these deals, just everything from A to Z on how to get these deals done. Now, there is some education out in the market. There's a group of guys that have been doing education and training about the park business for a long time. They've been doing about 10 years and they're very successful in the space. Uh, they own, I think they're like the eighth largest owner of mobile home parks in the US. So they're, they're a big deal. They, they do a great job. I've had them on my show. They're incredible operators. But what they offer is like a three-day boot camp, and it's actually where I went to get my first bit of education on this uh, on this asset class. But in three days, it's really hard. If you go in, it's really hard to take all this information. You're getting fed with a fire hose of information to take it and to actually turn it into something after you leave there. They really do give you what you need to get started, but for 90% of the people that attend, it's just there's something there's something missing after the fact. Like you're not going to go out, you're not going to go to a three day boot camp and then go buy a two million dollar asset just because you went to a three day boot camp. And so what I found is that a lot of people have come to me that have actually attended this three day boot camp and said, "Hey, gosh, I went to this thing a year ago. I want to buy a park. Like I'm going to buy one one way or another. And you know, do you ever partner with anyone? You know, they they asked me this question, and we have partnered with with listeners in the past. And so I was like. There's a need for us to put together a program, um, something that is kind of more of a hands-on approach, like, a, hey, let's walk you from A to Z. We'll, we'll take you through each step of it. We'll show you our business, show you what we do, like literally open up the vault. I mean, we, we, we systemize and document everything we do in our business, Any, you know, everywhere from analyzing a market, 
to building a database of the of the properties within that marketplace to doing direct mail cold calling working with brokers to track down those property owners to talk with the property owners about selling their property to the negotiation side of things to the raising capital getting funding all the way to even hiring a manager of the park you know like training the manager we have a whole training system in place so we have all this document and i said wouldn't it be great if we put this together in a little bit more of an organized format and actually taught these people the right way to buy like let's help them buy their first parks and so that's what we've done it's it's going to be a it's either going to be a five or six month long program it's going to be very intensive uh, it's going to be a small group i'm only I'm literally only accepting 25 people into the program and because i want it to be manageable we're not we're not educators by trade we make our money by investing in properties and our goal with this program is obviously we're going to make some money selling the program it's not going to be free we're going to make some money doing it but our idea behind this program is buying good properties is all about timing right you know we do a lot of prospecting and you know it's all about finding the owners of properties on the right day either they have a motivation because they're going through some health challenges or it's just the right time for them to sell whatever it is i might have talked to them on a monday and they said hell no i will never sell this and then on friday they found out that their wife is leaving them well now they got to sell the property but if i called them on monday and I don't call them again for three more months. Someone else probably did call them a week later, and th that person's the one that purchased that property, right? They got a good deal. And so the idea behind this program is that we train 25 people how to do this process right, how to acquire parks and operating properly, but also that if we help them achieve what they want to achieve by buying their first park, hopefully they'll think of us when it comes time to partner on a deal or raise capital for a deal, and hopefully we can do more deals collectively as a group together. And so we're almost more of a forming a, a, a co-op experience so that we can all help one another achieve our goals by buying tons and tons of mobile home parks and making a ridiculous amount of cash flow off of. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's incredible, mate. Just to touch on a few things there, I think – one thing is that I, and I don't know a lot about mobile home parks because I'm a multifamily guy. It sounds like in the industry, typically, that their own mobile home parks are owned by mum and pop shop start, you know, guys. They're not owned by big conglomerates or, or REITs. So accessing, you know, you can talk directly to the owner pretty quickly i want to say i don't know if that's uh, what's what's your what's your sort of feel on, on that sort of side it's of a it? little inaccurate actually oh is uh, it okay you, yeah you'd be surprised um there's there's a couple very large reits that are in the space and they have been for a number of years and um the space has really gotten a lot of exposure over the past 10 or 15 years and there's a lot of professional investors into institutional guys and reits that own massive portfolios right. i mean um you know, warren buffett sam zell they're both in the space uh, sam zell I forget how many spaces he owns. I think 100 and 150,000 mobile wow. park space. I mean, yeah, just a ridiculous <laughs> amount. And so, yeah, there's some big players in this space. But yet, there are also still – it's still a very fragmented industry in that – majority of mobile home parks were built in between the 50s and the 70s with a yeah. lot of them being built in the 70s that was kind of like the, the you know the, the decade where a lot of it happened and so the original developers of those parks there's still a big portion of them that still own that park and they might have been in their their 30s and 40s when they're they originally developing that park well now guess what now they're in their 70s 80s and they're they're aging and they're at the point where either they're running the park on a daily basis themselves and they're just tired and worn out or maybe they got smart about it at some point they actually have a system in place where it's being run for them but they're still at the age where they need to think about selling this asset maybe they don't have a a son or a daughter that's going, that wants to take it over you know that happens a lot of times but you know so it's at the point in their lives where they need to make a decision so it's kind of unique in that um that's the case i mean i just we just made about 20 cold calls yesterday uh, on on a bunch of parks in a couple different markets and Every single one of the owners, except two, were in their 60s or older. 
that we called on. Right. And so, um, you know, it's just uh, there's a better chance of finding an opportunity when you're dealing with someone that has to sell it for reasons other than just because they want to sell it. Right. A lot of these are motivated due to health and, you know, uh, just really just getting burned out from the business. Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very exciting time. Right, right. And I guess it goes back to the theme of what today's show is, is that you're saying some big, big players are in the market and, and have been coming into the market uh, over the last 10 to 15 years. And I'm, it's probably more to do with the fact that it's commercial real estate, it's cash flow, and it's not recession-proof, but is it can be mitigate your risks against when the recession, a recession or downturns in the market happen, because you're you're relying on your cash flow and not necessarily uh, the appreciation. Is that sort of why people are getting more and more involved in the mobile home park? Well, I think there's many different reasons. I mean. This is just my opinion. I don't think our economy ever fully recovered from the recession. I think that the the government somewhat uh, falsely you know, leading this recovery with quantitative easing and things of that nature. So our economy, I don't think, is any stronger now than what it was before the recession. And so uh, we, we see that the middle class is kind of going away. People really are getting poorer and poorer, right? I mean, it's just – there's no more affordable housing being built. I mean, all these projects you see coming out of the ground are high-end apartment buildings, high-end homes. And affordable housing is going by the wayside. And so the demand is ever growing for affordable housing. And we serve some of a unique niche in the affordable housing realm in that people that live in that demographic have the option. They have an option to choose a really low-end C-class apartment building that you know probably is rough and has neighbors above, below, and to either side to where you can hear them vacuuming and the kids running around and all that. Or they could live in a community that has really does have a community feel. Uh, they got their own yard. They got their own parking space. They could put Christmas lights out. And more than likely, they can own the home at some point in time because most park owners do very creative like rent-to-own programs and things of that nature. So they can achieve that American dream of owning even though they only make eight, nine, ten, twelve dollars an hour. So you know, so that's one of the reasons. Another big reason that I think a lot of people are getting into space is there's some unique barriers to entry that exist with mobile home parks that don't exist in apartments or pretty much any other commercial asset class and that they're not being built anymore. You know, local governments and municipalities hate these things. They've got a very negative stigma attached to them because you're right. I mean, there are the, you know, the, the, the typical trailer trash type mobile home parks uh, throughout the U.S. I mean, there are. They're, they're rough and they're bad. They attract bad clientele. But there's also really nice ones as well. But yet the, the industry already has a bad name. And so there's per- permits don't get, you know, I mean, Every once in a while, I think last year there was like three parks built in the United States. I mean, at least that's what I know of. And so there's actually more going away. A lot of them are being torn down for redevelopment purposes. Maybe the health department shutting them down because they're not being run properly or sanitarily. So, you know, there's this big barrier to entry that if you buy a park in a great market and you preserve that asset, you don't have to worry about a developer coming in and putting one in, you know, a half mile down the road. You know, so it's it's very, very unique. And then, you know, multiple other things. You know, the apartment space is hot, as you know, Reed. I mean, it's just people are chasing yields. People are – I feel like it's getting very frothy at this point in time. And so people are – the people that are chasing yields are trying to find where they can get the yields. Where else can they get these yields? You know, what other asset classes can they buy where they can achieve these yields? And so people are kind of expanding their their parameters a little bit and just happens that mobile home parks, if bought correctly, you know, a lot of times you can get a, you know – if you compare the same apartment complex, you could probably get a two to three point yield premium um, on that on that particular asset, you know, on the on the mobile home park versus the apartment. So, um, lots lots of different factors going into it, but it's definitely it's becoming a well known space. Okay, and then so with the more and more people coming online with the investing in mobile home parks, and there's only a limited number of mobile home parks here in the United States. And you just said that there's not a lot being built. Will there come a point where 
it's saturated and there's not going to be enough uh, inventory out there to purchase for investors? I mean, it's getting more challenging already. I can see that, you know, that that um, even on our prospect, and we prospect very aggressively. I can see that there's a lot of competition. But, you know, at the end of the day, just because someone can buy a mobile home park doesn't mean they know how to run it properly. So, you know, I think that there's always going to be opportunity, and I think there might be less and less of it as this gets as it becomes a more organized asset class, you know, and, you know, just kind of like self-storage is, is very similar. Self-storage, you know, 50 years ago or 40 years ago was just mom and pops. That's all it was. There were no big operators. Now, a lot of the big operators have come in. They've done roll-ups where they've gone around and acquired a lot of the mom and pops. And now it's a very organized industry. There's still mom and pops out there in the space, but the the large institutional players dominate that industry now. It's not there yet with mobile home parks, but it will be at some point in time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's still an opportunity for guys like you and I that just want to own you know, 10 or 15 parks to where we can't buy a good deal still from operators that just didn't do a good job operating them to where there's still a good value-add deal available. Right. And I guess it leads us back to why you and I both love commercial real estate is that you go and you, you find a distressed asset, you get it up and running. And once it's up and running, you can sort of sit it on the shelf a little bit and have it just operating, ticking over in the background, which what you saw back in 2009, even though you didn't really realize it, you had a couple of uh, apartment communities and you and your partners were like, oh, these are going well, but you didn't understand sort of why they were going well. It was because they were producing cash flow and they could continue to pay uh, the debt off and, and provide you positive cash flow. And and now you're sort of getting those same um, asset classes, also so same deals, putting them on the shelf once they're, they're up and off operating and keeping them on that shelf because, as you say, you're wanting to buy for long-term uh, cash flow to create that long-term wealth. So, so fantastic. Kevin, looking forward, what are you doing to build on your business and grow as a real estate entrepreneur here in the United States um, to, to sort of essentially maintain your investors' capital? You know, we're just we're keeping up on trends. I mean, the mobile home park space, as as with any other space out there, is changing on a, on a regular basis. Um, there's lots of new programs that are coming out in this space that allow us to increase our revenues. For instance, uh, you know, the, up until about three or four years ago, one of the big challenges in owning a mobile home park was uh, you found a mobile home park and you'll find a park that has 100 spaces total. Maybe only 70 are occupied with homes. Well, you've got 30 empty pads. That's, that, there's a lot of upside there, but it's very expensive upside to achieve because a lot of times what you have to do is you have to go buy used homes or new homes and bring them in and then sell them back. I mean, very, very capital intensive to do. In fact, most, most people just don't have the capital to do it. And that's why you see empty space in the parks. Well, the industry has, has been changing over the past couple of years. There's some good programs out there by some of the leading mobile home manufacturers that are basically funding, uh, putting model homes in, in, in mobile home parks for the park owners, like basically funding, giving you the homes, letting them sit there, letting them sit there for up to a year, and then offering great financing programs for the end user. So, you know, just really keeping up on trends, making sure that we're, you know, on the cusp of, of what's happening, what's changing in the industry so that we can continue to drive our revenues. And, you know, another thing is we're just, we try to stay ahead of the game with our prospecting. You know, I, I think that's such an important part of it is keeping quality deal flow coming through our pipeline. And so, we, um, we've got a whole team of, of individuals. We do direct mail. We do cold calling. Um, you know, we do a lot of in-person visits. We deal with brokers. We've got a couple of very unique broker initiatives that we uh, implement to, to find deals and to you know, keep in touch with deals. And so 
you know, we're just trying to stay one step ahead of the other competition that's out there. And I think that's how we, how, how we've been able to sustain and actually grow on a, you know, on a steady basis. Got it. Got it. That's, that's incredible stuff. I, I love what you said about trying to keep, keep on top of your, what your process is and what you're good at. And that is prospecting. So, mm-hmm. you know, well done. Uh, the last question I have for you, Kevin, is that, you know, this show is all about international investors breaking into the U S market. Are you working a lot with any international investors right now? And can your program, your educational program be used elsewhere around the world in terms of just the fundamentals of investing in mobile home parks? You know, we are, we do not have any investors at this point in time or that are outside of the country. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that's a good question about if, if our, our educational program can be used in the other countries. I don't know what other countries have mobile home parks. <laughs> they do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you guys have parks? You have it, parks down plenty, there? Of, plenty of parks in Australia. I know a couple okay. of guys up in, um, up in Canada who are very, very oh, successful. Canada, yes. Um, in, in, in mobile home, uh, mobile home investing, actually one of good, one of my good buddies who got me into commercial real estate, he he cut his teeth on, on a a half a million dollar mobile home park, 30 pads and did really, really well. I know in Europe, they're all over Europe and that's, I guess more sort of the fundamentals of back to understanding, uh, how it works in terms of the maintenance, where you're making your money, where where's there's identifying red flags, and that that applies to any commercial asset. You know, when I first started learning about multifamily, understanding just what a red flag was in in a rent roll, and I'm and I'm sh- I'm sure with your fundamentals uh, of mobile home parks, it could be you could say that it could be applied to other countries around the world because it, that's what you're looking at, right? Absolutely. Yeah, cool. All right, mate. Well, look, I absolutely love this chat with you today. And I know with all your investing experience in commercial real estate here in the United States, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? I think so. Let's do it. Mate, what is your most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I think the biggest thing for me is having a consistent workout routine. I mean, I, I my brain just works so much better. It fires on all pistons the days that I get a good, solid workout in before I come into the office. So, I mean, that, that I, I attribute that to a big part of my success. Are you, uh, you a morning workout guy or, or, or end of the day? Yeah, I've got to be because I've got a young child at home. And so I get up <laughs> really early in the morning, like 4 a.m. Wow. And, uh, and get my workout in. I do a lot of cycling, so it's, it's uh-huh. not like a, an hour workout. A lot of it has to do, it's like a two, two and a half hour ride. And so I try to get it in and get home right when the family's waking up. That good. way I'm not like missing any family time. Good, good, good. Kevin, I know you'd have an influential tool in your business. What is it and, and why, why is it so influential? You know, I don't know if you want to call it influential or not, but there's a tool that we use that has just really allowed us to be ahead of the competition with regards to prospecting. And, you know, the tough thing nowadays with prospecting on on, on not just mobile home park owners, but properties owners in general is that it's really hard to track down good phone numbers. Most people don't have landlines anymore. I mean, unless you're 60 years plus in age and you have a landline or you have an office line, but most people just have cell phones, right? And it's really hard. You can't just go and Google somebody and find their cell phone number. You might be able to, but more than likely not. And so we use a tool called TLO.com. And it's actually, yeah, it's it's actually, it's a website owned by one of the uh, one, one of the credit bureaus, and it, it takes a little bit of effort to get set up with them. And you got to be able to prove that you got an office space and that you're a legitimate business. But basically, it is a tool that gives you more information than you'd ever want to know about somebody. It's a little scary, actually, uh, of how much information it gives. But what it does give is um, it's about 97% accurate in terms of tracking down cell phone numbers for an individual and, and or, or their relatives. I mean, so we, we always, when we build our databases out, we want to be able to cold call people. And so 
we want to be able to find their phone numbers and we have a really good, you know, really good uh, uh, accuracy rate with finding phone numbers on TLO. It costs money, you know, it becomes expensive, but it's worth it if your goal is to, yeah, to do cold calling. Interesting. And that just provides you with anyone's number. It doesn't have to be necessarily someone in real estate investing. It could just be a random Joe Blow. Absolutely. Anyone. Right. Yeah, cool. anyone. Yeah. Cool. Kevin, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? Definitely the Mobile Home Park Academy. I mean, it's been something that we've been putting a lot of effort into over the past six months. And I, I got a lot of people that are super excited to join and, and be a part of it. And I think it's just it's going to make waves in this industry. So I'm super excited about it. Fantastic. And Kevin, who's the most influential person in your career? You know, it's someone that's not really uh, involved in my career today, but it's someone that I, if they weren't in my life at that key point in time, I wouldn't be here today. And mm-hmm. so it's it's an individual. His name's David Christmas. He's the one that got me into this business when I was 19 years old. And so yeah. I still I attribute all of my success to him because honestly, I don't know what I would be doing. I'd probably be working selling vacuum cleaners or something <laughs> like that door to door. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. I don't know if I'd be in real estate. More than likely, I wouldn't be. I could be, still be bartending somewhere. You know? right, <laughs> Who right. knows? So he is very influential in my life. I don't talk to him that often any longer. We live on the opposite uh, sides of the country, but I still talk to him on a regular basis. And he's still a mentor to me. And um, it's just I wouldn't be where I am today without him. It's fantastic. That's it's surprising how many people come on the show and say that first person who got them into real estate. You know, after all these years in real estate, they still look back to that sort of tipping point or the, the aha moment where they the penny dropped for them. So, so great mm-hmm. stuff, mate. Uh, and the final question is, well, best US deal you've completed to date? You know, I'm going to give you an example. I mean, I've done a lot of really great deals, but I'm going to give you an example that's in mobile home parks because since that's what we're focusing on now, we've we just, I was going to give you, I actually have a note here. I was going to give you a deal that we did about two and a half years ago, but we just did a deal about three months ago. And up until about a month ago, I didn't realize it was going to be such a good deal. And it's, it's just exceeded our expectations. And so it was a, it's, it's, it's a small mobile home park in Virginia. It's a 52 space park. We purchased it for 650. When we bought it, it was, uh, it'd been owned by 30 for 31 years by a very intelligent individual. Um, you know, had a big law practice, smart guy, but terrible with running this park. Uh, it was a very nice park, uh, well kept, but uh, his his expense ratio was running at about eighty eight percent. And um, I thought that I, I knew that we should be able to get down very quickly to about fifty percent. And uh, I knew the market had a high demand, and so our goal was to be able to get in this thing, turn it around, and you know have it kick out some good cash flow. So anyway, we bought this thing on the front end. Looking at it on the front, it should have been worth about three hundred grand. How he was running it because it wasn't making any. He was he was only making about twenty eight thousand dollars NOI. I mean that was his like previous year. We paid six fifty for it, which was equivalent to like a four or five cap. So terrible deal on the front end, right? When you think about it, it's been since November six is when we closed. Uh, to date, where I think we're running at about a forty. I just looked yesterday. I thought it was a little higher, but we're running about a forty three percent expense ratio on this park, and it's going to do about two hundred sixty thousand dollars gross this year. And so you guys, you guys can do the math on that one. So we basically bought at six fifty. It's a ten cap market, like on an exit that it would be conservatively, it would be a ten cap park. If we sold it today, and so we've essentially, in a matter of two and a half months, we took it from being worth three hundred thousand. Exceeding what we paid for at six fifty, and it's really worth today. It's worth probably about one point two million dollars, and it kicks out, and it kicks out a ton of cash flow. And we got the owner to finance it because it was not financeable because he ran it so poorly on the financial side. So he did some pretty attractive owner financing for us. Um, you know, we put money down and all that, but uh, you know, so we got him to finance it. It's non recourse debt, and this thing is just 
it's a cash cow now. Wow, it's an that's in- cash cow. Yeah, that, that's incredible. That sounds very familiar to my my mate in Canada. Same sort of thing. Had poor metrics on it and had to get the seller to take uh, a seller carryback financing. And well done. You know, it, it, it. What typically expense ratio do you find with mobile home parks? Is it you said fifty is fifty percent the the rule of thumb that you use? No, that's the thing. There's multiple rules of thumbs. You got to have like five thumbs because. With apartments, you've got apartments, right? You're like the things that you have to consider in an apartment building is like the age of it. Um, you know, if it's like a, if it's something that's 30 years old, obviously it's going to be higher expenses than something that was just built, right? Because everything's a little worn out. But with mobile home parks, it's a little different because there's different types of mobile home parks. There's some mobile home parks to where all the homes in the park or all the trailers are owned by the residents, meaning that the park has no maintenance or upkeep on you know AC units, roofs, plumbing, things like that. And the only thing they're up, you know, doing the upkeep on are, is the infrastructure itself. So the roads, um, the common areas, things of that nature. And so the expenses are very low. They could be as low as thirty percent in a park like that. Uh, you know, assuming that the taxes are all normal. You know, the, the taxes are at a normal rate and insurance is at a normal rate. So they could be as low as thirty percent. And then you take it on the flip side. You take a park that. Uh, consist of all units that are owned by the park. They're out there. They're, I mean, they're they're not all that common, but they're out there to where the entire park is a rental community. The, the park owns all the units. So it's basically an apartment complex. And in situations like that, it depends on the age of these homes. I mean, if they're you know, 30, 40 years old, I can promise you that you're going to be running probably in the 60% range, if not a little higher on the expenses. Now, like this park we bought in Virginia, it was kind of a mixture of the two. Uh, half the homes in the park were owned by the residents. The other half were owned by the park. And then, so what we've been doing is we've been basically every time a lease has been coming up and we've had a bunch, we've, I think we sold seven, seven homes already in the past couple of months. So every time a lease comes up, we're in tax season now. And so we're literally just selling these homes as long as the people qualify, you know, as long as they pass our background and steady employment, we're selling these things for next to nothing. I'm talking like two, three grand a piece because our goal is to get out from underneath the maintenance of it. And so that we can, all we're going to do is collect a lot rent at that point in time. They own it at that point. Don't cost about your roof. Don't cost about your AC. It's yours. And so uh, that one will probably be able to take, we're running about a 40, 43, 44% now. And that's slowly going to dwindle down over the next probably 18 months as we sell off more of these units. And so our, our, our goal is to get it lower and lower and lower. And we've got like a full-time maintenance guy in there. And at some point, we're going to have to get rid of him because he won't have any work left to do. <laughs> so <laughs> that's uh, I think you might be giving some of your secrets away, but it sounds very, very incredible in that you, wanted, you, you don't want to be in the business of owning the actual trailer home, the trailer itself. You want to own the pads. And that, if, if I got that correct? Yes, yes. I mean, I've, I've argued this point with other park owners that think they, they, they think they make a lot of money on the rental side of the business. But about the only way you make money on the rental side with just doing rentals is if you're a slumlord and you defer maintenance and you don't fix up your park and you're just turning your units to really dirtbag type tenants. Yeah, really, that's it. And, you, and at the end of the day, when you look at it, is the money you made worth the stress that you just incurred by running that type of community? And it's just not. And it goes back to what you were saying before, back in 2000, before the crash, you were a lot of stress and flipping houses and a lot of time um, putting into managing those things. And it's just so much easier to put your time into something that is in commercial real estate that can just operate on itself or you, you put your teams in places to run it for you, correct? That's Absolutely. Sort of, yeah. I mean, yeah. you want it to be scalable. You want, Whatever exactly. you're doing, I mean, unless your your only goal is to buy one property and that's it. I mean, if you say, hey, look, I, I want to quit my corporate job. I make $100,000 a year. I got enough money saved up to where I want to just want to buy one apartment building that would literally just replace that income. And now I'm happy then. And, you know, like that's all I need in life. If that's the case, then you're going to be more hands 
zone anyway. And like you, you could afford probably to, you know, maybe be more involved on a daily basis and have those headaches if you wanted them, I guess. I don't know who wants headaches, but if you want to scale your business and you want to buy a lot of property and really, really have it be life changing, then you gotta, I mean, you, you gotta be very careful what you buy. You gotta buy a quality asset. You gotta run it properly. I mean, otherwise it's just not gonna be scalable. Like these guys that I argue this point with that own these, these rental parks, most of them are that way. Like they literally own this one or they own one or two parks and it is their life. I mean, it consumes every hour of their day of their week because it's so management intensive. And it's like, is it really worth it? It might make good money, at least on your on your paper, it might make good money. But is it is it worth it? The headaches and the stress and the gray hairs that you have because of it now, and uh, I, I'd argue that it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, and it's setting up it's setting up your team around you. You know, you're having a full time maintenance guy. Uh, I'm assuming you're gonna have some sort of management guy as well on site and, and letting those guys run it for you and you step away so you can work on your business not in your business right absolutely that's i mean every single one of the parks we have we have on-site managers uh, normally it's it's an individual sometimes it's a husband and wife but it's one person that does the rent collection they do the, you know they, they serve late notices they go to court on evictions they kind of oversee the uh, if we have rehabs going on units that we own they oversee those types of things for us and just handle the day-to-day -day operations and so I mean, I, I honestly, there's a, there's one of our parks that we try to make a buyer parks every three months. There's one park that I just, I, I need to get by it. And I haven't been by it in probably about six or seven months. And, but we do, we, uh, we talk, I talk to either myself or one of my partners talks to our managers at least once a day, either by phone call or text. We do Monday morning and Friday morning uh, meetings. You know, Monday morning, I kind of get a uh, get a game plan together with them. You know, we're in a couple turnarounds right now, so a couple of them are a little bit more intensive than others in terms of like, hey, we got to lease units, we got to sell units, we got to get these rehabs done, you got to do you know these these capital improvements that that we had planned and all that kind of stuff. So you know, we do weekly meetings with these managers to keep everyone on track and to know you know how many units we've sold, what's going on, are we making progress? And so, uh, but I don't see them that often. You know, we don't see them that often. It's just, they kind of, they handle their things there. And uh, unless we see there's a problem, you know, we track all the metrics very closely. And, you know, even like the phone calls with leads, we have a lot of leads coming in for people interested in living in our communities. And I, I've got a system set up to where I can see when our managers miss phone calls. I can see how long they're on the phone with prospects that call in and I can record the calls and I can listen to them to see what they're saying to residents. So we're, you know, there's, I can tell when a problem occurs and I can normally get to it before it gets too far along. Yeah. Before we start losing money or, you know, we start seeing a, a decline in you know, occupancy or anything like that. So Very good you can stuff, nip, it, nip it in the bud pretty quick. <laughs> Very good stuff. It sounds like you've got it all mapped out and I love getting the processes of a business up and running because that's what it is. Once you get your processes up, you can start stepping, not stepping back, but letting those processes run the business for you. So, so well done. Uh, and my final question for you is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? The best way to reach me is on my website, kevinbupp.com. Uh, they can contact me through there or my personal email is kevin at kevinbupp.com. Either one of those ways will come directly to me. And I'm normally pretty responsive. Unless I'm traveling, I normally get back to people within you know 24 hours or less. Fantastic. And we'll have all those links in the show notes below. So Kevin, you are another amazing guest. You really provided some just you know quality, straightforward information. And you know that's what we're all about on this show, providing no BS information so, inf so investors can learn from the experts and you know, essentially, their life value, the valuable life experiences, so they can make an informed decision when uh, buying U.S. real estate. Thanks, mate, for dropping by and chatting with us. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Reed. It's been a lot of fun. Take Fantastic. care. 
Well, what another incredible show. Thanks, Kevin, for dropping by. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Kevin and any links we mentioned on today's show. A conversation will go up on my website, as always, at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the old podcast tab. Now, thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge, as that's what we're all about here on the show, just to continue growing your financial IQ. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group or Reed Goosens. Now, remember, if you do like this show, the best way to give back is by quickly jumping on iTunes and subscribing and giving the show a five-star review. It's quick and easy and helps us grow the show's reach across the globe to help investors start successfully investing in the US. We'll do it all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.